Today's reading is in Exodus 3, verses 16 through 20. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are going to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jason Green was the senior editor of Pitchfork, a popular online publication covering indie rock bands, doing album reviews and that sort of thing. He had turned a hobby into a career, gotten married, carved out a life for himself in New York City, and then he and his wife Stacy were in those first uh, tumultuous early years of parenting when you're life gets all of a sudden turned entirely upside down by the intrusion of an infant, turned upside down in ways that you honestly can't explain to someone else, only experience, and turned upside down in ways that interrupt and affect quite literally everything, and turned upside down in ways that you would never ever trade back, even if you could. Their two-year-old daughter, Greta, was everything to them. And one weekend, Greta was having a sleepover with her grandma on the Upper West Side, a little respite for the weary parents. And Greta and grandma were sitting on a park bench near Central Park when a brick crumbled from a windowsill above, striking Greta in the head, killing her instantly. It was a freak accident. And in the years that followed, Jason, the writer of indie album reviews, became the author of a memoir on the horror of loss and the maze of grief many never find their way out of. And when my youngest child, Amos, was in the hospital living his first 30 days off machines, his chest cut wide open because his heart had not been assembled correctly in the womb. When I was living in the limbo of those days, I was dozing off at night reading Jason's memoir, a potentially ill-advised decision. What struck me was how he talked about God. For Jason, if there was a God, he's a monster, a cruel taker of life and a permitter of evil. If there is a God, he is to blame for Greta's tragic story and every other one like it. And for me, God was a lifeline. God was the only one who could lead me through those 30 days. He was the creator of everything good, the sustainer of life, and the one fighting a cosmic battle against the tragedy of death. My story turned out very different than Jason's, and gratitude is too small a word for that. But what I still think about is all we still have in common. And yet, God was a very different character in our very common stories. Stephen Fry, a comedian and outspoken atheist, was once asked in an interview what he might say if upon dying he was confronted by a God who turned out to be real, and he responded instinctively, I'd say bone cancer in children? What's that about? 
How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? A couple years ago, I got to spend a week in a house with Dr. Jerry Sitzer, a lifelong follower of Jesus who I admired from a distance, the author of A Grace Disguised, which is a book about how he lost his wife and two of their four children in one car accident to a drunk driver and the God who buoyed their broken family through that toward redemption. Same God, very different perspectives of who he is and the role he plays in the world. Some in the 17th century American church used the Bible as a defense of the transatlantic slave trade. Some slave masters sat on pews and sang hymns on Sundays. They read their Bibles and prayed each morning while owning and abusing other human beings. Howard Thurman authored the brilliant book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which Dr. King uh, credited as the inspiration for the civil rights movement. Thurman's book shows us Jesus through the eyes of the American slave, a God who walks beside the oppressed, who speaks for the voiceless, who fights for the powerless, and who brings injustice to an end, however long it may take. Same God, very different perspectives on who he is and the role he plays in the world. Exodus is the most referenced event in the Bible, or in the Torah by the rest of the Bible. It's the defining event by which God told us his name, which is a Hebrew way of saying he told us his character, his person. He told us what he's like. When we look at Exodus, we're letting God introduce himself to us. And at times, that will be a comforting affirmation of who we already imagined God to be. And at other times, it'll be a potentially discomforting confrontation with who God really is and how he might be different than the God of our imagination. So we're journeying through the Exodus story over the summer as a church. Uh, week one was an introduction to the broad strokes and larger themes. In week two, we slowed things down to develop the characters. Week three, the plot thickened with a bit of drama. And today, that drama reaches a fever pitch. And for some, the God you see in Exodus today will be a comforting affirmation of the God that you came in holding in your, in your imagination. For others, that same God might meet you more like a confrontation, disorienting before comforting. And either way, it's important. It's important to let God introduce himself to us rather than create an imagined God in our image because how you interact with the world, how you interpret the events of your own life, how you deal with life's blessings and life's tragedies, all of it is defined by who you believe God is. And Exodus is a definitive event by which God told us who he is. So today's teaching text is five verses from Exodus chapter three, but we're actually going to cover all the way to chapter 10. So just eight chapters of the Bible in a single sermon. That's all, that's all it is, just eight chapters of the most complex and dense events in the whole of the biblical narrative in a single sermon on a holiday weekend. And if that makes you anxious, don't worry. A couple days from now, you'll be eating a tempeh dog and a gluten-free bun in a friend's backyard getting ready to blow things up. So just relax. 
The title of today's sermon is The Plagues and Pharaoh's Hard Heart. I'm going to give it to you in three parts, the story, the elephant, and the treasure. So the story unfolds in two themes. We've got Moses' staff and ten plagues. God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush and commissions him as the unlikely deliverer of the enslaved Israelites whose prayers God has heard and whose suffering he plans to bring to an end. And while this is both a supernatural experience and a huge honor, Moses is also a realist about the situation. He's a fugitive shepherd. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world, leading the most powerful military in the world. This is a dangerous confrontation, and it's nowhere near a fair fight. So there's this back and forth between Moses and God until eventually, at the beginning of chapter 4, Moses turns his attention from the confrontation with Pharaoh to convincing the Israelites to come with him. What if they just think I'm nuts? What if they don't come with me even if you really will take us out of slavery? What if they don't buy my whole story about the voice from the burning shrubbery? It's all a legit concern and God responds to Moses' question with a question. What's that in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it on the ground. He does, turns into a snake. He jumps back terrified. I would have too, always been afraid of snakes, disgusting creatures. God says, don't step away from it, touch it. In fact, pick it up by the tail. He does, it turns right back into a staff. This, said the Lord, this is Exodus 4 verse 5, this, said the Lord, is so that you may, they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now hang on, is this just some kind of reptilian magic trick? Why would this symbol express to the Israelites that God is going to deliver them from slavery? Why would this cue Israel to believe it's God who's speaking to them through Moses? Well, remember the author of Exodus has gone to such great lengths to tie his story back to the Genesis story, to frame Exodus as a sequel to the biblical story of origin and meaning and purpose. And in Genesis, the deceiver behind the destruction of everything good in the world is a, a snake. So this isn't a magic trick, it's hypercharged with biblical imagery. God, through Moses, is declaring authority over the snake, the deceiver, the ultimate enemy to the human race. God has joined his hand to Moses' hand to demonstrate authority over evil. God's hand neither causes evil to exist, nor does God's hand entirely eradicate evil from God's world, not yet anyway, but God's hand does demonstrate authority over evil. And this, by the way, is where the whole constant biblical theme of God's strong right hand comes from. It all gets traced back to God joining his hand to the hand of Moses, symbolized through the staff. Later in Exodus, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In the Psalms, you have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand hand is exalted. And the prophets, for I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand who says to you, do not fear, I'll help you. The prayer of David, which is quoted by Jesus in all three synoptic gospels, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And the resurrection of Jesus, according to the apostles, is explained this way. He is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So check this out. The entire Bible is symbolized in Moses' staff. 
So Moses does it. He goes to Pharaoh and he drops that famous line. Sing it with me if you know it. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, baby. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so Pharaoh's response is fascinating. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Exodus is a book about people who knew God but forgot his name. Israel forgot God's name, meaning they forgot what God was like. They forgot the promises that he made to them and how he relates to them. So God reintroduces himself to one of these forgetful Israelites, Moses. And Moses awkwardly, fumblingly recovers God's name, Yahweh. And then Moses appeals to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. And instead of letting the people go, he turns up the oppression, keep the quota of bricks the same, but reduce their supply, make them work twice as hard for twice as long. Moses becomes distressed because all he did was make things worse. And then God responds, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, there it is again, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now that last phrase is a bit confusing. It's actually best translated, but by my name, Yahweh, did I not make myself known to them. So God tells Moses, the oppression's been turned up, but what I'm going to do is going to show the world what I'm like. The way that I reveal myself as rescuer to these enslaved Israelites who have been praying to me is going to be as intimate and as personal as I revealed myself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Moses. This is very important. God claims that what he's about to do is a revelation of his name his character, it's an introduction to his person. And what God does is reveal his name through 10 decisive acts, 10 plagues or 10 strikes against Pharaoh. 10 ways God shows that he's got authority over the snake and offers Pharaoh the opportunity to change his heart. We're going to call them the 10 acts of decreation because that's what each one of these plagues is. It is decreation. They are not random or unfortunate incidents. They're not torture tactics. They are thoughtful acts, highly charged with biblical symbolism, revealing the name of Yahweh to both the oppressed and the oppressor. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and death. 10 acts of decreation. First, the Nile River is turned to blood. Back on, uh, in Exodus chapter one, in an attempt to stop the fruitful multiplication of God's people, Pharaoh issues a nationwide genocide against all Jewish-born males. Every time a Hebrew woman gives birth, if it's a boy, throw the boy in the Nile River. And so the first plague is Yahweh's way of saying to Pharaoh, I know the blood that's on your hands. I know what you have done to my people. Now let them go. And it's important for you to know on, for everything that happens next. The Exodus story is a mirror of the Genesis story. 
Page one depicts Exodus as this new creation full of renewed blessing which is interrupted by a curse from a deceiver that we have just named, throw the children in the Nile River. The plagues are then the breakdown of God's good creation that we see on the Bible's first page. Let me show you how this works. Uh, Next come the frogs. A week after the Nile turns to blood, Pharaoh's still stuck in his ways, and so we read in Exodus 8, the Nile will teem with frogs. Rewind back to Genesis 1, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Now this is a pretty specific word, teem. It shows up just 14 times in the whole of the Hebrew Bible. 12 of them are in the Torah. Team shows up in Genesis 1 when the author is setting this story, I'm sorry, in Exodus 1, when the author sets Exodus against the Genesis story. It shows up again in Exodus 8 when the author is framing the plagues as decreation of the breakdown of God's blessing on the world in the beginning. What exactly do I mean by decreation? Well, the God revealed in, in Genesis is a God of life and a God of order. He gives life and he orders chaos. God orders the night and the day, the land and the sea, the land creatures and the sea creatures. Frogs, land creature or sea creature? Both, right? They're amphibians. Frogs, which appear only here in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, are an illustration of the return of the chaos that God ordered, a decreation of God's good creation. And that's not unique to the frogs, it's a pattern. But I'm gonna let you take my word for it a little bit more on the eight that are still remaining or we're gonna be here all day, okay? Next come the gnats. Strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Dust represents mortality in Genesis. Man and woman were created from the dust. The curse of sin is from dust you've come to dust you shall return. In Exodus, the dust is then swarming in the air. Your mortality is coming out of the ground to come for you. It is pulling at you. A world God designed for fruitful life is now swarming and teeming with death. What's the word for that? Decreation. Then there's flies. If you do not let my people go, I'll send swarms of flies. Swarms is Genesis language for the life that God created. Flies are an insect that live off of decomposing things. Flies swarm around death. Where there was swarming life, now comes swarming death. Decreation. Livestock. Uh, Pharaoh still won't budge, so God separates the livestock of the Israelites from the livestock of the Egyptians, just as Yahweh did in Exodus with night and day, moon and sun to govern both of them. The language of creation is echoed, but again, here it is to bring death rather than to bring life. You seeing the theme here that's repeating itself? This is pretty cool, isn't it? Is it just me? I think when I discovered that, I was like, the 10 plagues are like, 10 times cooler than I ever knew. This is fascinating. Next come the boils. The Hebrew word boil is the Hebrew term for snake backwards. That might seem coincidental in English, but in Hebrew, it's actually a literary device that is frequently used to draw the attention of the reader. Then there's hail. Hail will come upon human and beast and all the vegetation of the field. So that's a summary of everything God created on days three and six of creation in a single plague. Then you've got locusts who are gonna come to eat every tree, every green thing, and all the vegetation that sprouts on the ground. That's everything God created on day three listed again only now it's being destroyed in a single plague. Uh, Then comes darkness. God said to Moses, let there be 
darkness. It's an exact inversion of the Genesis phrase, let there be light, by which God created. And then finally, death of the firstborn son, the final plague set apart in a number of ways, and it's gonna be the entirety of our focus next week. For today, the first plague was symbolic of God's warning to Pharaoh, I know what you did. I know the blood that's on your hands. And then finally, nine chances later, God deals Pharaoh his own hand. The very oppression that you have been and continue to enforce on others, I will now allow to come back on your own house. Decreation, 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 decreation. These plagues are not random. They're the reversal of Genesis. They're a decreation of God's good creation, a cursing of all that God blessed. In a biblical imagination, this is how God is doing damage control on the suffering in his good world. And that's not a reach. This isn't like some poetic retelling of the Exodus story. This is the the scholarly consensus and the clear intent of the author. Check this out. This is the organization of the Exodus plagues. The plagues are very intentionally organized into three triads, symmetrically repeating phrases, linking each one, both horizontally and vertically. We don't have time for me to get all into this without losing 90% of you to complete Bible nerddom, but I did just want to show this to you to point out that this decreation theme is not a reach. The plagues are not random. The author of Exodus has made them fit together both linguistically and mathematically. Reading this section of Exodus is like reading a Rubik's Cube. Whatever you make of the Exodus story and the God that is revealed by it, this is not ignorant superstition or a fairy tale legend. It is sophisticated literature written very carefully and extremely intentionally. This story has outlived every other ancient Near Eastern conception of how God revealed himself to the world because thousands of years and hundreds of generations later, it still holds water. Is there any other piece of literature that can make a claim like that. One story, three parts. The story, the elephant, and the treasure. It sounds like a children's book, doesn't it? It's the furthest thing from a children's story. Um, My wife, Kirsten, was a really hard sell on spirituality growing up. She's one of those people who, if she knows you want her to want something or do something, she becomes resistant to it just by instinct. And so her parents were really trying to guide her toward Jesus in her childhood, but she could feel it. And so the guard went up and she was resistant to it. Like, for instance, there was this one time when uh, her dad was telling her and her older two siblings the story of Jesus breaking open the jar of expensive perfume, or I'm sorry, of Mary breaking open a jar of expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. And he was telling them this story around the family fire pit in the backyard. And then he said, so why don't each of you go? and pick out one thing you really love to put in the fire, to offer to Jesus, like perfume over his feet. And some people in the room are like, that's so manipulative and messed up. And then there's other parents that are like, wait, what was that? What was the size of the fire? (laughs) So, So Kirsten, feeling that something, you know, she felt that guard shoot up, so she went and got her brother's favorite video game to offer. in the fire to Jesus. You see what I'm saying? This is like how she rolls. <laughs> Except for the 10 plagues, which she loved, which I find so bizarre because so many of us were introduced to this story as a children's story. 
But it's the furthest thing from it. This is the story of an oppressor, an oppressed and abused people, and a series of plagues that cause mass suffering. Why is it that we've turned the most complex and violent biblical stories into cartoons and bedtime routines? This is not a children's book. And if the story hasn't convinced you of that, then the elephant certainly will. Because there's an elephant in the room in all of these events of creation and decreation. Return with me to our teaching text. I want to pick up in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Now the English mighty used to describe God's right hand is the Hebrew hazak. And it appears again in a very different context just a few verses later. Exodus 4.21 The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, you will perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have given you the power to do, but I will harden Hazak, his heart, so that he will not let the people go. So it appears that Pharaoh has a heart that is as strong or as hard as God's right hand. But the insidious phrase in this verse is, I will. God says, I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Do you see it? The elephant that just strolled into the room. The question is, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And if so, is Pharaoh morally culpable? And that's an important question Because if this series of events is according to God himself, how he shows us what he's like, how he introduces himself, how we learn his name, then how you answer that question may be very influential on what you think of the God revealed in the events. Maybe as different as me and Jason Green or as Stephen Fry and Jerry Sitzer or even as a 17th century slave master and Howard Thurman, two people looking at the same events drawing vastly different conclusions about who God is and the role that he plays in the world. So we need to take a deep look at this question. And I wanna break it into three parts, who, when, and what. So first, who is making Pharaoh's heart hard? Well, let's pick apart the evidence like a crime scene. In Exodus three, which we read a moment ago, God tells Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. This is a statement not of sovereignty, but of foreknowledge, or said in layman's terms. God is not saying that he will harden Pharaoh's heart, preventing him from letting the people go. What he's saying is, I already know that Pharaoh won't release the suffering and enslaved Israelites unless he's compelled in a dramatic, a hazak way compelled in a way that matches the strength of his own stubborn heart. So unless God does something very extreme, God's people won't be delivered. Pharaoh is enacting such evil, public infant genocide, by drowning newborns in front of their mothers. And he is playing such hardball with God, Yahweh, who's Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh, that God will have to play hardball with him in order to get redemption done. So the plagues are not God's design, they are God's concession. This is not God's preferred method of redeeming the world. 
But because a human being, by their own free will, is enacting such unrelenting evil, this is the only way for redemption. But there's still confusion here because both Pharaoh's agency and God's agency are introduced actively in the explanation of Pharaoh's heart. So who exactly is making Pharaoh's heart hard? Hebrew verbs come in three types. There's the active, he is strong. There's the stative, he is strength or he is in a state of strength. And then the passive, he was strengthened to the evidence. Moses encounters Pharaoh in chapter seven where we read, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, he refuses to let the people go. Now depending on the biblical translation that you typically read, your translation might say Pharaoh's heart was hardened at the beginning of this verse, but that is actually not the grammatically correct translation uh, in the Hebrew language. And you can trust me on this. I asked our own personal Hebrew language expert around here whose identity will remain anonymous for the sake of respecting, but it rhymes with slim tacky. I'll give you that much right now. The Hebrew verb in this passage is in the stative tense, not the passive tense. It's ambiguous whose agency is active here. And as the plagues begin, we are not told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but simply that his heart was hard. In the first five plagues, there's a pattern alternating between neutral, we don't know whose agency is enacting the hardening, and uh, where Pharaoh is actively hardening his own heart. It goes like this. With the blood, Pharaoh's heart was hard. The frogs, Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Gnats, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Flies, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Livestock, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then after the sixth plague, for the first time, we're told God got involved. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said to Moses. To this point, all the evidence has been pointing in one direction. Pharaoh, he is the only active agent we've got in the narrative until after the sixth plague. So let's turn our attention from, from who to when. When will God harden Pharaoh's heart? There's some pretty unique things going on here in plague seven. The first one is that there's two references mirroring the previous pattern that we see in Hebrew um, of Pharaoh's agency and a neutral agent being introduced. So this is Exodus 9. He and his officials hardened their hearts, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, neutral. And he would not listen to the Israelites just as the Lord said through Moses. That tells us at least that the previous neutral references don't imply that God was actively hardening his heart. Because here, the neutral is paired with Pharaoh's action, not with God's action. Secondly, this is the seventh plague. Seven is the Hebrew number of completion. Uh, numerical cues are extremely important in biblical language and biblical literature. Uh, there's no way to know for sure, but it certainly seems like the author is intentionally saying, implying, if not outright just screaming, that Pharaoh's heart has been completely hardened uh, at this point. He has completely hardened his heart toward God. Pharaoh's descending into insanity at this point in the story. After the hail, even Pharaoh's own counselors and advisors come to him and say, you're absolutely mad. 
Just let the people go. You've lost it. What we are dealing with here is the psychology of a tyrant. Again, this is not God's preferred method of redemption. The severity of his action is dictated by the severity of suffering for the innocent. And then finally, Pharaoh is a unique, not a universal character. It would be a mistake to read this story and then develop universal principles of the way God deals with us. There is nothing run of the mill about this situation. Pharaoh is uniquely powerful to carry out evil on a mass scale, resulting in suffering for thousands and thousands of people. He is actively imposing race-based slavery and unthinkably brutal infant genocide. Even more, in Hebrew, or I'm sorry, in Egyptian religion, Pharaoh was viewed as the chief god in human form. He is perpetuating this violence in alliance with dark spiritual powers, and he is claiming that race-based slavery, infant genocide, and the oppression of people is being done in God's will and is God's way, and Yahweh, the one true God, is not having it anymore. Sure, All of us have the same core condition in us that was in Pharaoh, sin. But most of us do not have the same sort of power and agency that Pharaoh possessed. And therefore, it would be very dangerous for us to either completely ignore Pharaoh's heart, assuming we have nothing in common with him, or two, build an entire theology out of the way that God deals with Pharaoh and assume that's the way he deals with you and I on a smaller scale. So when will God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, God takes over agency after the seventh plague. And that timing is important. This is the turning point. In plagues eight through 10, God is the active agent in hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's still an interplay between divine and human action indicated in every last one of these plagues. In other words, God never rips the steering wheel out of Pharaoh's hand. He doesn't start playing divine puppet master. What God does is after many chances become increasingly involved in the tyrannical volatility of the suppressor as a way to magnify his right hand reaching out to rescue his people. God says before any of this even begins, Pharaoh's not going to let the people go unless I act powerfully and decisively. And still God gives Pharaoh many many chances to prove him wrong. That doesn't happen and so God's activity eventually turns from appealing to Pharaoh to appealing to the people that Pharaoh is oppressing and those that are watching the oppression happen, that they would recognize the God who comes to rescue the suffering that cry out to him. God takes over something already happening anyway, Pharaoh's hardness of heart, not to punish Pharaoh, but to direct the attention of every onlooker, Pharaoh's advisors, the Egyptian civilian, the the oppressed Israelite, that even in circumstances this devastatingly bleak, all who would notice can see his heart and respond to him. We should think of God's action here like the score in a film. Right, when, when epic music plays under the climactic lines in, in a beautiful scene in a film or scary music during a, a scene in a horror film, that doesn't change the action happening on the screen. What it does is draw the attention of the audience to the significance of the action happening in this particular scene. That's what's going on in Plagues 8 through 10. Nothing is changing about the action. 
what God is doing is drawing the attention of everyone that might see the action to the significance of what is playing out and the God who is coming to rescue. And for what it's worth, it works. Even some of the Egyptians see God strong right-handed. They begin to submit to Yahweh's authority, not to Pharaoh's. In both the seventh and 10th plague, the bookends of God's agency, we're told that some of the Egyptians responded to Moses' warning and took shelter alongside the Israelites. So Egyptians are beginning to recognize and turn to Yahweh, and Israelites are sheltering their oppressor. They are loving their enemy. We see the wheat of the kingdom growing up among the weeds in the words of Jesus. And despite all of that, some may struggle with the idea that God ever became the active agent in Pharaoh's heart. And I can understand that wrestle. I won't pretend there's no mystery left in this story. I'm offering you the evidence for you to weigh yourself as I have weighed it. There's certainly mystery and room for wrestling in this story, but if, if that's where you are, I do want to pose this question to you. Would it say something better about God if he allowed Pharaoh's oppression without intervening and becoming active? Because from a parenting perspective, there's a level of mercy that helps mature my children, right? Like if I'm jumping on them about every little misstep, that's not going to help them grow up. But if I'm allowing one of my children to relentlessly abuse and hurt the other two without any consequence, I mean, wouldn't that just be enabling? Isn't that equally or even more dysfunctional? So when does the scale tip between mercy or patience and enabling? I think if there's a, story, or a question to ask of this story, it's that one. So as for our elephant, there's who and when and now finally what. And if you've gotten lost in the weeds at some point along the way, I get it. This is dense. But this is the moment to come back because we're going to zoom in on the moral of the story. Now, what does it mean? It means that even in the most horrendous human evil, God is actively working toward his redemptive purpose. This story was not written to answer questions you and I might have about sovereignty or free will. It's about the fact that even in the most horrendous human evil, think war on Ukraine. God is not only not absent, but present and active and working toward redemption. It's so important to remember that the questions that you and I might bring to the Bible are environmentally formed by our culture and context, and they might not be the questions that the particular scripture we're interacting with is engaging. And when we try to force our questions onto the biblical story, instead of allowing the biblical story to surface the questions it's addressing, then suddenly we're in danger of misinterpreting, misapplying, and manipulating the biblical story itself. That doesn't mean our questions are wrong or shouldn't be asked. It only means that this particular passage isn't going to help us answer those very questions. The questions addressed by the 10 plagues might better be asked by a Russian or Ukrainian right now than they would by an American. They might better be asked by someone who is interacting up close with horrendous human evil playing out on a large scale that is personally affecting me in a very direct way. Questions like, what prayer am I supposed to pray when I'm living under the reign of a villain? Or questions like, where is God? Does he hear me? Does he hear us? Does he even care? The affluent Western millennial might read this story and experience tension, but how would the Ugandan child soldier or the displaced Syrian refugee or the repressed Iraqi woman read the same story? 
To properly see the God that is revealed in the 10 plagues, we've got to read it as it was written, a story addressed to a people who have experienced tremendous suffering throughout their history, asking, is God still working toward his redemptive purpose when tyrants are killing everybody? Is it possible that God could really be moving redemption forward in a place like this at a time like this? And the straightforward, definitive answer is yes. Absolutely. Even in suffering this evil, or in suffering this mass, and evil this abhorrent, God is living and active and working toward redemption to end suffering and evil. Even within the lifetime of a suffering Israelite slave whose child has been ripped from her arms at birth and drowned in front of her, Yahweh is declaring, I am bending history to a day when no one will ever be called a slave again and no mother will ever grieve her child again and no life will ever be cut short again and no one will ever be allowed to wield power to abuse another again. This is not first a story for intellectual consideration and theological dictionary. It's a story for hope for the hopeless and good news for the suffering. Jason Green should be outraged by the randomness of his daughter's loss. And Stephen Fry has every right to be infuriated by children with terminal illness. That's not cynicism, it's the image of God. The injustice and suffering in our world is an outrage, and no one is more outraged than this world's good creator himself. The missing element in Fry's diagnosis and Jason Green's anger it isn't a need for a deliverer, it's the reality of a villain. Yahweh is a God of hope for the hopeless and good news for the suffering because he's a God of co-suffering compassion and he's a deliverer who will crush the snake's head. Finally, even within a story this winding and complex, there is great treasure. And the treasure is Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, did I not make myself known to them? That's where we started, and it's where we're going to end. The treasure of this winding, complex story is the God revealed through all of it. The treasure is Yahweh, a God perfect in both mercy and justice. C.S. Lewis uh, said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Lewis said, there's no neutral ground. Jesus said, and neither are there neutral people. Everyone must pick a side. In other words, every choice we make is in partnership with the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. There is no neutral. Observing Pharaoh in this story, it's like watching a callus form. How does a callus form just through repeated common action day after day after day in the same way until one day comes around and you can't just lotion that thing away anymore? This happens in the human heart toward God. We choose our own name, we ignore his presence and mercy and invitation by repeated action carried out in the same way day after day, something rubs on our heart until it's hardened. It's naive for us to think that my own heart cannot become similarly calloused. Sufjan Stevens wrote this song in one of his early records called John Wayne Gacy Jr. and it's always haunted me, I think in a good way. 
Gacy, if you're not familiar, is a, he was a serial killer in suburban Chicago who horrifically victimized countless young men. And then Sufjan wrote this song tracing his life from tragic childhood to even more tragic adulthood. And listening to that song, it's like watching a callous form. It's like reading Exodus. But it ends not with a reprise of the chorus, but with this hauntingly honest last verse where he says, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. It's naive to read Exodus with the assumption that we've got nothing in common with Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh is a unique character in a unique position. Nothing run of the mill. Remember, I meant, I meant that, and I still mean that. But to completely ignore Pharaoh would equally be a mistake. There's a troubling trend that I observe in our culture today of diagnosing social ills while ignoring personal responsibility. We are very quick to blow the whistle on structures and systems and trends, and we're much slower to bow our heads with contrition in our hearts. Very quick to stand with uh, female victims of sexual violence and very slow to confess a pornography habit, perpetuating sexual violence. We're very quick to stand with historically marginalized people groups and we're very slow to reconcile with the friend that I felt betrayed by. We're very quick to name punchy sound bites about historic abuses of power and we're very slow to confess the pride in our hearts that makes us hunger for power. And please do not misunderstand me. I am not arguing for one over the other. I'm saying to ignore either side of that coin allows a callus to form. Every choice we make, it's in partnership with the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. There's no neutral ground. So how do we remain soft-hearted? Well, the Hebrew verb salah, which translates to forgive, is only ever used with God as the subject. Yahweh is set apart in the broader story of Exodus as the forgiver. By the simple practice of confession, I become filled with the Holy Spirit who turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. This is what keeps my heart soft. It's when I realize personally and experientially that God's grace is stronger than my sin, that his love always outruns my failure, that his forgiveness is like the waves of the ocean, that it is ever lapping at the shores of my life. Yahweh's name is mercy. What Exodus shows us is that God not only drives out sin through his mercy, but he also fights sin off of us through his justice. Yahweh is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world by laying down his life, and Yahweh is the lion of Judah who roars with authoritative justice in every way that you and I are victimized. The God that we meet in Exodus is a God of justice who fights for the suffering until the evil is gone and the battle is won. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins. He teaches us to ask for mercy and he teaches us to pray in the same breath, deliver us from the evil one. He teaches us to pray for justice. The good news is that God is both, that he is mercy and justice in one holy being. It is good news for the oppressor that God is merciful. And it is good news for the oppressed that God is justice. It is good news for the beneficiary of inequality that God is loving and gracious, that he's slow to anger and quick to forgive. And it's good news for the victim of inequality that God is justice, that his end goal is a world without sin. Yahweh is the lion and he's the lamb. His name is mercy and his name is justice. And so today, as we respond to this story, some of us will likely be praying, Father, forgive me. 
Wash over my life again today with your forgiveness and let it seep into the deepest cracks in me so that I would know experientially that your name is mercy. And others of us will be praying, Father, forgive, or Father, deliver me. Deliver me from the evil one because I feel oppressed and attacked and I feel like the corruption of this world and the way that it's telling itself in my story is fighting onto me and wrestling me to the ground and I need someone to say, I'm not having it anymore. And the good news of the Exodus story is that God is both the one that reaches out to forgive and he's the one that fights the evil one off of you and I. That's good news for the entire world. So, as you look at these events and the God revealed by them, what do you make of them? Two people looking at the same evidence may draw very different conclusions, like Howard Thurman and the American slave owner, or Stephen Fry and Jerry Sitzer, or Jason Green and myself. You get to decide. What do you make of the God named Yahweh, the God revealed in the story? And if this is who he is, what does it mean for me today and the story that I'm living in? The plagues end with a promise that points forward to Jesus. The roaring lion of Exodus humbles himself to become a lamb whose blood covers the door of every heart who will receive him. Jesus did not go to the cross because the Father was angry with him. Well pleased. That's how we're told the Father felt toward Jesus. Jesus went to the cross because he was working with the Father to display the mystery of perfect mercy and perfect justice, living in a single being, to heal the wounds of the world through a sort of forgiveness that neither dismisses the wrong as if it didn't matter because as any victim can tell you, it mattered. But nor does it condemn the wrongdoer because what's in Pharaoh is in me too and that means to condemn one would be to condemn all. Jesus' forgiveness is one that upholds justice for every wrong and mercy for every wrongdoer, offering good news to the entire world. And that's what makes the cross not a grotesque solution to an unfortunate cosmic equation, but the most breathtakingly beautiful act in human history because the cross of Christ is where mercy and justice touch down on earthly soil together.